Hello and welcome to Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest headlines and provide an insider's view on Asian and global affairs. I'm Tom Woodruff, Senior Advisor on Multilateral Affairs to the President of the Asia Society Policy Institute, where I manage a project on the future of US-China climate cooperation. We are recording this podcast with around three months to go until the next US presidential election. That election will be pivotal, not just for the future of US climate action, but also the global fight against climate change. At the same time, we must remember that there is no solution to climate change without China. China is by far the world's leading emitter of heat-trapping gases, and in 2019, emissions from China were greater than the emissions from the United States, European Union, and Japan combined. That is why, as part of our project, we have just released our second research paper, which crunches the latest climate data from China and also highlights a number of key decisions the Chinese government will grapple with over the coming 18 months. The paper is titled China's Response to Climate Change, a study in contrasts and a policy at a crossroads. And today I'm delighted to be joined by its author, David Sandelow, who is the inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and who founded and directs the Center's US-China program, is the author of the Guide to Chinese Climate Policy, and has served in senior positions at the White House, State Department, and US Department of Energy. Professor Sandalow, welcome to Asia Inside Out. Great to be here, Tom. Before turning to the latest data your paper highlights from 2019, but also the start of 2020, I wanted to begin by asking you a little bit about how your own fascination with China began. I gather from the confirmation hearing from your service in the Obama administration, your first trip to China was in the early 1980s as one of the first groups of exchange students following the normalization of relations. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you and the formative impact it seemed to have on your career? You're right, Tom, it does. Uh, it was uh, quite a different China that I visited back then. You know, so when I was in high school, it was impossible for an American to visit China. There, was, there literally were no diplomatic relations between our two countries and it wasn't possible to go. And when I was in college, President Carter and Deng Xiaoping uh, normalized relations. And I started looking away, around for a way to travel to China. Um, and it wasn't easy. The internet didn't exist back then. But I managed to find a program uh, run by Columbia Law School. Uh, and it was at Hua uh, Deng Shifan Dashui in Shanghai. And I spent the summer of 1981 in Shanghai. It was an extraordinary experience. It was um, incredibly hot the whole summer, of course, not an air conditioner in the whole city. I was training for a marathon and I would come and just stand under a cold shower for a long time. But it was fascinating. And, uh, you know, China is just, a, it's a remarkable country. Um, and uh, as we've seen over the past, you know, almost four decades since then, a, a country that uh, not only with, a, with an ancient history, but one that that uh, has the potential to change the world and is changing the world in, in very important ways. Mm, what a fascinating uh, experience. I also wanted to quickly ask you at the outset about your own experience, the cooperation between the US and China during the Obama years, not least to illustrate how far that came over a relatively short period. It strikes me that in many ways, your own period of involvement actually illustrates that. You were sworn in as Assistant Secretary of Energy, I gather in the first half of 2009, just months before the fractious Copenhagen negotiations and left the administration in 2013, about a year before the landmark joint announcement on climate change by the two presidents. So I suppose my question to you would be, when you first joined the Obama administration, did you ever feel there was the possibility the relationship on climate would be able to transform 
quite as rapidly as it did and beyond China's own changing circumstances, what exactly did it take within the administration to get there? No, it was very clear in 2009 that there was no solution to climate change without China, as, as you've said. And it was it's also clear that China was, was already uh, a major player in global clean energy markets and that was only going to grow. So engaging China on these issues was fundamental to any strategy for, for addressing them. And r- relatively soon after my confirmation, I traveled to China met with uh, Minister Wang Gang, um, who was then head of the Ministry of Science and Technology, met with uh, Zhong Guobao, who was head of National Energy Administration, to explore ways to work together. Um, And there was strong interest in doing that. In in fact, the the first experience I had actually was um, instructive in in some of the elements uh, that I found in my career in terms of negotiations um, between the US and China. I proposed to Minister Wang Gang that we work together on developing clean energy technologies. And I will never forget, he stood up, walked around the conference table, shook my hand and said, yes. And I thought, well, this is perhaps the easiest negotiation that I've ever been in. It then, however, took two years for us to agree upon the details. And agreement in principle happened relative, you know, immediately. Uh, but, but then once you start diving below the surface, it's much more challenging. And there were a number of difficult issues to work out in this, in particular intellectual property issues. Um, but there was a genuine interest in both sides, I think, in working, working together. And one note, back in that era, I had very strong support from both of the U.S. ambassadors to China who um, I worked with. One was, uh, was Ambassador John Huntsman, who was Republican had a distinguished career, a number of important posts. Um, and then Ambassador Gary Locke, Democrat also, in a number of important posts, including his service in China. And, and both of them, I think, genuinely said to me they cared about the clean energy issue and the climate change issue, but they also saw this issue set as being a good way for the United States and China to um, engage each other. Um, you know, any bilateral relationship between two great powers like the U.S. and China is always going to have some contentious issues in which the two powers disagree. Mm-hmm. We're certainly seeing that now and we can come to the current state of relations. But I think that's always going to happen. So it's, I think it's also important to have issues where the two countries can work together. Um, and so both for the climate change and clean energy agenda, as well as for the U.S.-China bilateral agenda, I think there was broad support for engagement. Um, and that ultimately led to... Um, course, a historic agreement between President Xi Jinping and President Obama uh, in 2014 before the Paris Agreement. But, but before I get to that, you mentioned Copenhagen. And that brought back a memory that I want to share with you and your listeners, because the Copenhagen conference was actually the first time I had ever been in the same room with Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who is now your boss, of course. And um, the, at, the, at that conference, uh, there was a quite extraordinary room in which 20, maybe 25 heads of state sat together in the end of that conference and negotiated the terms of the agreement. And it was really a a sign of a dysfunctional agreement because you don't bring heads of state together to negotiate, Uh, kind of lines in text the way that it happened then. But one of my enduring memories of the Copenhagen conference was how Prime Minister Rudd um, was so substantively expert in this issue and deeply immersed in the text. And I remember him at a few points making 
comments that I thought, wow, that, that is a level of detail and expertise that I would expect only from a climate negotiator. And it's coming from a head of state. It's extraordinary. So I've been a big fan of, of your boss ever since. Mm, it's the benefit of having a, uh, a diplomat turned prime minister. Um, but he certainly, uh, certainly has the scar tissue to prove his attendance like so many people uh, do. And I read just on that point, I read that I think you visited um, China 13 times while you were at the Department of Energy. Was that the most visits you did to any single country? And is that emblematic of where China would sort of sit in the hierarchy of priorities around cooperation? The, the most by far, absolutely. No, I was I was there, you know, roughly every quarter, and and we were we were negotiating on a range of issues. We were, you know, I think it's worth saying it wasn't all a cooperation agenda. We also had some very serious disagreements um, and negotiating on some challenging issues during that period. You know, including intellectual property issues where we had serious concerns about the and, and technology transfer, serious concerns about what China was doing. We had some difficult discussions back in that period on Iran's sanctions issues. So. It was a mix of cooperation and, and uh, competition negotiation, but but it was, you know, it was um, well structured. I think. I mean, the the, the Obama administration continued um, with some adjustments, a structure that had been put in place under the Bush administration before it, really principally by Secretary of Treasury Hank Paulson, in which every cabinet agency got together every six months under a umbrella called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue. Um, and in, engage with their counterparts. And that was a good way of keeping dialogue open. And so it was, uh, you know, there were difficult issues, uh, many difficult issues, but it, but it was, uh, I think, managed in a very structured and disciplined way. And fast forwarding to today and turning directly to your paper, I wanted to ask you about the latest climate data that you were able to crunch uh, from China and looking firstly, perhaps at 2019 uh, in isolation before the impacts of COVID-19 really began to take hold. It seems like you paint a relatively mixed picture already for China. You find, for example, that its share of global renewable energy deployment, while still the highest in the world, dropped for the first time in several years, while at the same time in other areas, such as the sale of electric vehicles, the numbers continued to increase. I wanted to ask what particularly stood out to you as you crunched that data and how do you explain the shifts um, looking at 2019 especially? Thanks to the Asia Society for the support in developing in this paper and, and, and your work on it, Tom. I think the subtitle of the paper is a study in contrast. And, and that, I think, summarizes Chinese climate policy overall and, and what happened in 2019 uh, and climate policy. And a big picture, um, China is, uh, consumes more coal than the rest of the world combined. China is um, exporting uh, coal uh, technologies around the world and stands behind the development of coal-fired power plants uh, in many parts of the world today. And, and that has a very serious negative impact on global climate change. At the same time, as you were pointing towards, um, uh, China sells more electric vehicles than the rest of the world combined. Um, China leads the world in deployment of all forms of renewable power and has pretty consistently for the past decade. In 2019, in China, there were 26 gigawatts of new wind power capacity that compares to nine gigawatts of new wind power capacity in the United States. There were 30 gigawatts of new solar power capacity that compares to 13 gigawatts of, of new solar power capacity in the United States. Um, uh, so it, it, is, uh, it is a study in contrast. Now, in, during, during the period from roughly 2014 to 2017, 2018, um, there was a big focus on both local air pollution and 
and to some extent climate mitigation in China in the policymaking. And, and when leading Chinese policymakers, um, including uh, President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqiang spoke about coal power, for example, they would often focus clean coal mitigating um, uh, the air pollution impacts and, and limits on coal development. There's been a bit of a shift in tone, I think in the past year, uh, more focusing coal development over, you know, scaling it back. Um, and that's been evident in a few high profile speeches, um, in some approvals, and, and in the continued growth of the Chinese coal fire power fleet. Um, last year in China, about, about roughly two thirds of the coal plants that opened around the world in 2019 were in China. Um, and, uh, you know, 30 to 40 or so um, new gigawatts of, of new coal-fired power plant capacity open in China, which is a big number. So why is it happening? I think um, the reasons probably include some concern about the economic slowdown um, and, and a priority associated with that. Some concerns driven by the U.S.-China trade war. Uh, uh, resource security and has always been something at the kind of top of the agenda for Chinese leaders. I think the U.S.-China trade war has underscored the vulnerability that China has to, um, you know, distant um, energy, energy lanes. And, um, and so there's a focus on, on making sure that China is energy secure. And that has tended to be the, the dominant factor, I think, in Chinese policymaking. One, one more note on this. There are no climate change deniers in the Chinese government, at least None, none that are known or have any obvious influence in mm. policy. And that's an you know, important point, particularly for our U.S. listeners. Chinese government, it's often described as a government of engineers. It tends to take a science-based approach to, to these issues. To, to be sure, climate change is not the top priority in Chinese decision-making. Um, but, it, but, but you don't see denial in the same way that you have in the United States government in the past couple of years. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating point, not just for the United States, but in fact, for a lot of Western uh, liberal democracies around the world, it's, it's hard to think of many, in fact, where you would not find uh, someone skeptical of the science on climate change uh, in any one of those countries, indeed. And turning to the, to the first quarter of 2020, um, which in many ways is, is quite interesting as the impacts of COVID really began to take hold. Uh, in China as it did around the world. Two of the most interesting insights I thought that you found was one, uh, that there was only a 7% improvement in days with good air quality year on year, given that many factories um, seem to be continuing to operate. And two, that solar generation climbed 12% when generation across the board, in fact, dropped 8%. Can you explain a little bit more about what these numbers from the first quarter actually yeah. are telling us about the state of the Chinese economy during that yeah. period? So, so first, and I mean, and of course, many listeners will know this, the, the first quarter of 2020 was um, a historic drop in GDP in China because of the coronavirus. And, um, it's, you know, um, and I don't think there'd been a quarterly drop in GDP in 40 years or so in China, but um, China went into lockdown and GDP went down roughly six or 7%, according to official statistics, and, and carbon emissions went down about 8% following that. I remember in kind of early February, um, as China went into severe lockdown, and this was before this had spread around the world, this was only happening in China. But I remember talking to, to uh, colleagues in Beijing um, who were you know, stuck in their apartment um, and, and learning at the time that the air quality was terrible in Beijing um, and being surprised uh, given that the country seemed to be shut down, that, shut down that that was happening. And, and 
the, the reason is it's emerged is that all the transportation emissions were way down because people weren't driving as much and the roads were were mostly empty. Power still needed to be generated. So coal-fired power plants were still operating in, in many parts of China. And, and even more important, industry was still operating. And you, you can't just turn off an iron and steel plant um, without doing major damage to the facility. And China's you know, um, dominant iron and steel manufacturer in the world and across a number of other industries that are major polluters, uh, those industries continue to operate even during the lockdown. And so, so there, was, there was some uh, decline in air pollution for sure. And you, there's some maps that have kind of circulated pretty broadly of in particular nitrous oxide pollutants and you see some decline in that. But, but al although there was some decline, it was less than many people expected, I think, um, in some Chinese cities for the reasons I was, uh, I was just saying. Uh, you also made interesting observation about, about solar power generation. And this really struck me when I look at the data. I didn't expect to see this. But um, during the first quarter of, or maybe the first two months of, of 2020, total power generation dropped um, by about eight or 9% in China. But during that period, solar power generation increased um, and by about 12%, um, which is a, you know, strikingly against the overall trend. And so, and there are two reasons that that happened. But, and the first reason is that China, as I said earlier, China added 30 gigawatts of new solar power uh, in the year before. So there was more opportunity to generate solar power. But then also there's some new policies in Chinese provinces, um, renewable electricity quotas that require grid operators to purchase solar power when it's available before other forms of power. That's actually the opposite of the way it was a couple of years ago. Previously, you know, kind of historically in China in general, uh, grid operators have been required to buy coal-fired power first. Um, but there are now new policies in China that not only allow but require them in some instances to buy solar and wind power first. And that's why we saw the spike in solar power generation in the first quarter of 2020. Fascinating. And before turning to the future, at a political level, one other thing that struck me in your paper was also that you note that while China's leaders are strongly committed to the Paris Agreement, uh, that they appear to have attached less priority to climate change than in years past. And you mentioned some of the um, sort of contextual reasons for that, the trade war and so forth. At a political level, though, is there any reason, any indication to suspect that any of that has anything to do uh, with the U.S.'s own position on the Paris Agreement under the Trump administration, for example, in recent years? I think it probably plays a role, yes. Although I, I think one thing I find in the United States is that Americans, sometimes people in the United States have, have an exaggerated view of our diplomatic influence. Um, uh, so it does play a role. But one thing I've noticed in Chinese climate change diplomacy over the years is the influence of G77 countries on Chinese climate change diplomacy. Um, my, my perception uh, has been that the Chinese leadership does not want to be seen as a climate villain by G77 countries with whom it is historically aligned. And in fact, going back to the Copenhagen conference, I, I have a very strong and clear memory there of a conversation I had with the head of state of a small island country. And as a U.S. climate uh, diplomat, I had been used to being criticized by such countries for the United States emissions. And this, this head of state, instead of criticizing the United States, was criticizing China, which in 2009 had become the world's leading emitter. And it was kind of underscored for me the shift there. And so I think, uh, I think my, my perception has been that the Chinese foreign ministry and other parts of Chinese leadership does, does not 
it, want, it, it wants to be seen as part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that doesn't just involve its diplomatic relations with the United States, it involves the rest of the world. Mm, it's an interesting point. I remember when I used to um, work as an advisor to a small island developing state, and I remember at the time of the 2014 UN Secretary General's Climate Summit, in fact, which President Xi Jinping didn't attend, uh, interestingly enough. And I remember when that decision was announced that he would not attend, that the country that I was advising actually came out quite strongly and criticised China for that decision, invoking a sense of developing country solidarity. Um, and it was actually one of the things um, that seemed to actually generate the most reaction um, in, in several years of, in fact, climate change advocacy was uh, with that particular statement uh, about mm. their attendance. The second half of your paper looks to the future, though, and you say that China's policy is in many ways at a crossroads with respect to a number of specific decisions it has ahead of it, including with regards to its stimulus spending at the moment, its targets under the Paris Agreement, um, the development of a mid-century strategy on emissions, and also its next five-year plan. Are you able to quickly break a break those individual processes down a little bit for our listeners and particularly what uh, climate watchers should be keeping their eyes on uh, as part of each of those processes? Sure, delighted. So so first, um, the Chinese government is currently um, um, implementing a series of, of steps to stimulate its economy in the wake of the COVID recession. Those stimulus measures are smaller than in the last recession um, during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And you know, back in that era, Chinese stimulus spending really drove uh, huge spending in the, or you know, huge demand growth in the global economy. Uh, today, I think there's, there's constraints related to debt um, in the Chinese system that prevent this type of massive stimulus. But still, there's uh, a lot of attention to stimulus measures. And, and Premier Li Keqiang has spoken uh, about, in particular, has, has spoken about so-called new infrastructure spending as part of stimulus. And new infrastructure spending is on you know, digital technologies, um, uh, 21st century technologies. And he's particularly highlighted some clean energy technologies as part of that. He's highlighted um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure um, as an important element, um, mass transit and inner city rail is a big part of it. Um, and, uh, and, and also electric transmission lines, which, which can promote clean energy, they can also promote coal power. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there. But, um, but so I think this is part of the mix. Um, we did an interesting workshop on this topic with Renmin University about a month or so ago, um, and, uh, and have a report coming out on it soon for, for anyone who's interested in that. One way I'd summarize what's going on in green stimulus in China right now is that there's less attention to the so-called green stimulus measures today in Beijing than in Brussels, but probably more than in Washington, D.C. Um, so there's, uh, it, it's part of the dialogue. Um, so that's the stimulus plan. I, I talk in the paper about three other areas that are important for climate change policy, as you said, the 14 five-year plan, then, um, then China's climate action plans, which they'll submit to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. There, there are two of those. The 14 five-year plan um, is, uh, under development right now in Chinese ministries. It will cover the period 2021 to 2025. It'll be out and kind of the major elements will be out at the end of this year, the beginning of next year. And then the energy specific elements will um, be developed probably during 2021. Uh, very important document for Chinese policymaking overall. Um, 14 five-year plan targets set the pace and set, you know, set for Chinese policymakers and our guidance for ministries. 
Um, so very important decisions there kind of throughout almost everything in the energy aspect of the 14 five-year plan and the agriculture elements of the 14 five-year plan are, are important for climate change. One issue that's particularly important is the, um, the amount of coal-fired power plant capacity that will be allowed under the 14 five-year plan. Um, right now, the cap is 1,100 gigawatts. There's been a proposal to, from the Chinese um, Electricity Council to increase that to 1,300 gigawatts. If that happens, that would be... Um, negative for climate change, um, allowing that. And so there's a big dialogue right now, I think, going on about that. Uh, the renewable energy targets will be very important. Many other elements will be very important, the 14 five-year plan process. Uh, then um, under the global climate negotiations, there's really two documents that are under development. One of, and, and, uh, one of them, the climate action plan uh, over the course of the next five to 10 years, it goes under the label nationally determined contributions. Um, that's what it's called in, in, the, in the process, the global climate negotiation process. And then there's a longer term one called the mid-century strategy, which looks at um, what China's goals are gonna be looking forward to 2050. Both of those are gonna be very important. And one, one particularly important um, item to highlight in those plans, um, it's the goal that China adopts for 2050. Um, and uh, the science tells us that by 2050, the world needs to be at net zero emissions to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. And so looking forward to what Chi the Chinese government says it's going to do in 2050 is hugely important since China is the world's leading emitter. Um, it's also particularly important for another reason, which I point to in the paper, which is that the Chinese government has a capacity for long-term planning that exceeds that of most other countries in the world. The Chinese government is currently on its 14 five-year plan, as we just said. Um, it, it, has, it has tools in place to facilitate multi-year planning, or even multi-decade planning, that certainly contrasts sharply with what we have in the United States. I mean, in, you know, in, in, in the U.S., when there's a one-year appropriations bill signed by the president, uh, everybody applauds and thinks it's quite an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in China, there's, you know, in contrast, a uh, 14-five-year plan being developed right now. So, so I think uh, a lot of the world will be watching what the Chinese government adopts as its goal under, the, under its mid-century strategy and a lot of other issues under those plans. Mm. I was going to actually um, pick you up on that point that you make around China's demonstrated long-term, uh, well, propensity for effective long-term uh, planning um, when it comes to mid-century strategy, because it strikes me, uh, the point that you make, um, in many ways is this, is that there's a binary choice of massive relevance to the international community within that, which is whether China, as you say, um, aims for net zero emissions by 2050 or after 2050, given that the latter would require negative emissions reductions from other parts of the world uh, if they do. And I was struck also, in fact, that um, last week in a public lecture, um, China's special advisor for climate action, Xi Jinping, actually cited that there were 121 other countries committed to achieving net zero uh, by 2050, which is interesting that he would, he would cite a statistic such as that. Um, but rarely do I feel that there's such a stark barometer in many ways for measuring how others might perceive Chinese ambition. And I was wondering from your perspective and your long experience working with um, folks in China, how much do you feel that that is particularly weighing on their minds as to whether to aim, as I say, for a target by 2050, which would be very difficult given the nature of their economy, much more difficult than, than um, many, many other countries um, versus uh, something in the second half of the century. 
I, you know, I would uh, I would expect that it is a topic of conversation um, within senior Chinese policymaking circles right now. Um, it's an important one. I think they both in terms of the science um, and in terms of the, the diplomacy. You know, it's it's a very important one, and and, um, and and where China ends up will will have a lot of impacts. No question. In closing, I wanted to return to the concept of U.S.-China climate cooperation a little bit more centrally. Uh, as you write in the paper, a Biden administration's ambition in addressing climate change would be reinforced by ambition in China. And obviously, the bilateral relationship as it stands today is an increasingly precarious state. Uh, and any new administration come next year is still going to have to navigate some very difficult waters. Um, but if we take as a given, though, that a new administration would see climate change as an area for mutually beneficial cooperation, how do you feel this can best be operationalised quite apart from the geopolitics where a lot of people focus? In other words, are there particular areas which are screaming out for this kind of cooperation in, say, the energy space? So first, I think if there is a Biden administration, there will be a 180 degree change in U.S. federal government climate change policy. Um, there will not be a 180 degree change in the U.S. federal government's China policy. Um, I think uh, many of the concerns behind the Trump administration's China policies are broadly shared across the political spectrum in the United States. Vice President Biden will make some would make some significant changes in in China policy. I think he he, he would not target um, you know, the bilateral trade deficit and kind of small purchase agreements as a principal objective of of U.S. policy. I think he would not be subject to personal flattery in the same way that President Trump has been. I think he there would be more consistency in policy. There wouldn't be the vacillation between a kind of a tweet praising Xi Jinping and a Secretary of State blasting. Um, uh, Xi Jinping. So I think, I think there'd be some very significant changes in U.S. policy towards China. Uh, but still, it would, it's going to be a very challenging relationship. Um, there are some very significant disagreements between the two countries. Um, uh, against that backdrop, I think climate change and clean energy does have the opportunity to emerge as an area where the two countries could work together. The other obvious one is in public health and you know fighting the pandemic. And I think those types of global issues only makes sense for China and the United States to work together on. And, and I would hope that under, and I expect that under a Biden administration that there would be ways to work together. But, but and I wanna underline, it will not be easy. I mean, right now there's a um, enormous lack of trust between the two governments, um, enormous hostility and, and enormous nationalism in both countries, which will make it difficult for the two governments to have space to work to even work together on anything. There'll be criticism if they try to do that. I, I think um, confidence building measures will be very important. Um, and so finding ways to, to work together in the energy space will be, will be key. One natural area is in the area of um, carbon capture um, and so-called carbon removal technologies. Those are gonna be extremely important for solving the climate change problem. Um, and I think the United States and China can find ways to do some joint projects, work together, um, many of these technologies have been developed in the United States and could be implemented in China. I think there's uh, great opportunities um, as well in some type of agriculture and food related issues, um, which I think are hugely important from a climate change standpoint and don't get, don't get enough attention. Um, 
and, and Chinese diets are going to be changing in the years ahead and U.S. diets too. I think there's really interesting opportunities for cooperation there. Um, and maybe even third country uh, work. I think, you know, finding ways to jointly develop um, clean energy technologies in, in third countries, although challenging, could be interesting as well. But I think, um, I think the U.S. and China do, in fact, have aligned interests when it comes to climate change, principally. We, it's important to both countries to mitigate uh, emissions. We're the world's two largest emitters. Uh, we have some complementary skill sets. And I think with some confidence building measures, we could once again work up to a, um, a, a time when we're, we're actually productively working together on those issues, despite the other challenges in the bilateral relationship. Mm. Um, fascinating. Um, unfortunately, on that note, though, I'm going to have to bring the conversation to a close. Um, but it's been a great conversation. And for all of our listeners, I encourage you to read Professor Sandalow's paper available now on the Asia Society Policy Institute website. Uh, I'm Tom Woodruff and Professor Sandalow, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tom.